Good evening. Before I begin um, my portion of the sermon uh, dealing with the events of John 19, I'm going to pray for all three parts that the Lord would bless and that he would um, convict, that he would be pleased, that he would um, speak through his word tonight. So please uh, bow in prayer with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time to be able to come together on this special night where we commemorate the death of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that we are only able to come to you through what he did for us. And tonight we celebrate the tragic events uh, that occurred this Good Friday 2,000 years ago. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would speak through your word tonight. We know that you promise it will never return void. It will always accomplish what you would have it accomplish. So I pray that you would use us mightily uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit to teach about and to explain and to apply the events of Good Friday. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Behold the man. Behold the man. Happy Good Friday. I am dealing with the first 16 verses of John chapter 19. I believe it's going to be on the screen. Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 to 16 before I begin discussing the text. John 19, verse 1. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and an Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. Happy Good Friday. 
In John 19, 1 to 16, we have a detailed account of the death sentence placed upon the Lord Jesus Christ by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea, which in the first century was under Roman control and rule. The Roman Empire had sent men into each of their provinces in order to keep the peace, or in other words, to keep its subjects in line. Mr. Pilate, who would be stationed in Caesarea, happened to be in Jerusalem due to the coming Passover festival. It is on this Friday where in Jerusalem was preparing for Passover that we see Jesus brought before him. Now, being that the Jewish chief priests were not legally permitted to pass sentence on Jesus, they appealed to Rome through their governor, Pontius Pilate. And it's here in John 19 that we read in verse 1 that Pilate has Jesus flogged and mocked. Now, by flogged, I mean tortured, whipped, and whipped by a whip containing fragments of bone or, or stones or glass at the tips, meant to tear flesh when it hit. He was also beaten. He was also spit upon, and other accounts say his beard was pulled out. And by mocked, I mean a crown of thorns was woven and placed upon his bleeding head, the spikes being driven into his flesh. Not only that, a purple robe was placed upon his torn and throbbing body, purple in order to make fun of the fact that he was accused of being royalty. In reality, this robe was probably an old tattered garment long before cast aside, but the shade of color being just right to imitate royal purple worn by the kings of old, it was placed on his beaten and sore body. Other gospel accounts tell of a staff being placed in his hand in order to make the mockery complete. So the Roman soldiers even took the staff and repeatedly beat him on the head with it. They blindfolded him and struck him, asking him to prophesy, to tell them which one of us hit you. He was beaten and he was mocked. So here stands this image of a defeated man, a, spectac a spectacle in order to be despised. Jesus is brought before his accusers and Pilate exclaims, behold the man, look at him. But pay close attention to what he says before that as it's an important aspect of tonight's discussion. In verse 4, Pilate says, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him, that I find no guilt in him. No guilt in him. So let's get this straight. Pilate has Jesus beaten to within an inch of his life, humanly speaking. He's been dressed up as, uh, in a mocking way with a robe and crown in order to humiliate him. Then Pilate has a nerve to say, I find no guilt in him. Really? Well, it is thought that Pilate allowed this mocking and beating in order to satiate the bloodlust of Jesus' accusers, maybe to demonstrate the fact that in this condition, this man was obviously no threat to Rome. He was no threat to the Jews or to anyone else. Look at him. Behold the man. You see, Pilate may have hoped that his harsh treatment of Christ, a treatment that in many accounts killed other prisoners, this type of treatment, that this would satisfy them. And maybe it would move the crowd to pity or to mercy. Maybe they would think he suffered enough. Maybe they would offer to drop all charges against him. But no, Verse 6 plainly says they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. 
Apparently, the chief priests and officers were so bent on his complete annihilation that even seeing him in this condition made them even more thirsty for his execution. But then Pilate retorts, you crucify him, you take him. Why? Because I don't find any guilt in him. So legally, in the eyes of Rome, Jesus does not deserve to die. Now, the Jews know that they cannot legally execute Jesus, so, so far they know appealing to, to, to Pilate in the beginning doesn't work. Now they claim a religious reason. What do they say? In verse 7, they say, hey, we have a law. We have a law. And most likely, this is referring to Leviticus 24, 16, where it says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall be put to death. So we have a law. They believe that this is their next best option. Okay, They claim that his blasphemy, so they argue, makes him worthy of death in the eyes of our nation. And what was his supposed blasphemy? They say he has made himself the son of God. Here we see the Jewish leaders fully understand that Jesus claimed to be God's son. And this title was paramount to claiming to be God himself. No, he wasn't claiming to be a good teacher. He was the son of God, equal to the father in every way, performing miracles, taking the prerogatives of God, especially forgiving sins. Now, this religious accusation makes Pilate even more afraid, the text says. Therefore, he takes Jesus back in private and asks him, where are you from? In other words, who are you? Perhaps Pilate, a superstitious man, a Roman pagan, not knowing the Hebrew scriptures, not believing in the one true and living God, Yahweh, but believing in gods in general, his Roman religion being chock full of gods, yes, even gods that can take on human form, he now sees a whole new threat, a whole new situation. Perhaps this Jesus really is a God. Maybe uh, Pilate heard the rumors of Jesus' miracles, healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, driving out demons, turning water into wine, walking on the sea, or even raising the dead. Who are you, he asks. But the Lord Jesus does not answer. This scares Pilate, but it also enrages him. He asserts his own authority in order to rival Jesus' claims of divine authority. So in verse 10, Pilate says, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? To this display of arrogance, Jesus does reply. He says, You would have no authority over me at all had it not been given to you from above. Now, this statement quickly tonight can have one or two meanings. I mean, he could either be saying that you, Pilate, are a low-level local official banished to Judea. This so-called authority that you think you have is only as much as been given to you by your boss, Caesar. And is in as much as you don't mess up too much in order for him to replace you with somebody else. So he could be saying you would have no authority if somebody else didn't give it to you. Or more likely, he might be saying that you, Pilate, are just another bit player in God's sovereign plan to redeem the world. Therefore, any authority you have over me has been granted to you by God in order to carry out his perfect righteous will. As Acts 4, 27, 28 so clearly puts it in prayer, it says, For truly in this city 
Jerusalem. They were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to occur. Amen. And so it follows that you, Pilate, would have no authority over me if it hadn't been given to you by God above. Then he adds that although Pontius Pilate's role in the unfolding of God's plan was indeed sinful, and it was, nevertheless, it's the one or the ones who brought Jesus to him in the first place that are guilty of a greater sin. It's either Judas who betrayed him after walking with him for three years in ministry, or maybe Caiaphas, the high priest, the ringleader of this whole sham trial, or perhaps the Jewish mob in general who did not receive him, as it says in John chapter 1. All people who should have known better, who knew the scriptures, those that testified about Jesus, and who had the evidence pointing to Jesus' messiahship the whole time, to his lineage, to his perfect sinless life, to his divine miracles, people who knew Messiah would come and that he would be God himself. But nevertheless, they refused to believe and handed him over to be killed. And they handed him over to a man like Pontius Pilate, a man who knew none of these things, yet who is also guilty, although to a slightly lesser extent than those others who should have known better. And so once again, Pilate is rattled and seeks to release Jesus. Therefore, the Jews now resort to a third tactic. They appeal to Pilate's fear of Caesar. They invoke Caesar's name in order to threaten Pilate. They say in verse 12, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend because everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. And so this finally does do the trick. Threatening Pilate with ratting him out to Tiberius Caesar, was already dis who was already displeased with him at this time, might I add, is the final nail in the coffin. Apparently, the fear that the Jews would somehow get word to Caesar that Pilate was balking on condemning Jesus, who was setting himself up as a rival king to Caesar, was what it finally took to convince him. So what does Pilate do? He takes Jesus out to them one final time. He sits upon his judgment seat and prepares to condemn Jesus to the cross. This all being done at the very same time where the people all across Jerusalem were preparing to observe the Passover. While the true Passover lamb was being prepared for sacrifice, you see, as the preparations for the observance of the first Passover from the Exodus uh, were being concluded, right, the commemorating of the painting of the doorposts, when the Israelites, when they were ready to, to leave Egypt, when they would wipe the blood of the lamb on the doorposts in order that the wrath of God, that the slayer would pass over them and instead would pour out his wrath upon the Egyptians. At this, as this memorial was being prepared for, Jesus Christ, the true lamb of God, the substance of which occurred back in Egypt thousands of years before all pointed to, his blood was about to be shed in order to appease the actual wrath of God on behalf of sinners, not just Jews, but Gentiles as well, praise God. You see, this true lamb was being prepared for slaughter at the same time as the symbolic observance was about to be underway. See, God's timing is perfect. It's perfect. So Pilate says at this point, behold, 
your king. And how do they respond? Away with him. Away with him. Crucify him. And now we see one last ditch attempt to free Jesus. If you look closely, you see it. Pilate asks, shall I crucify your king? In other words, again, look at him. He's no king. He's beaten. He's defeated. He can't hurt anyone. He's nothing to be concerned about. Should I crucify this poor soul? To this they exclaim, we have no king but Caesar. Okay, question. Who was supposed to be Israel's king once they entered the promised land? God, Yahweh. Not King Saul. And if you're, you're reading through the Bible in one year, you're, you're already encountering what Saul's doing now. Not Herod, and certainly not Caesar, but God. It was supposed to be God. And just like Israel refused his kingship back in 1 Samuel, then again, they refused his kingship in 33 AD, give or take. We have no king but Caesar, they claim. And Caesar, who's thought to be living deity, everything that's opposed to Judaism, everything that's opposed to monotheism, everything that's opposed to the Mosaic law, the leader of the empire that oppressed the Jewish people, to this leader, they fake allegiance. They say, we don't want the Messiah, we want the Caesar. So, John 19, 16, so he, Pilate, delivered him over to them to be crucified. In closing for this first part of the three sermonettes tonight, we see Pilate, number one, who was convinced from the start that Jesus was innocent of all charges and not deserving of death. We clearly see that. But he caved in under the threat of Caesar. He knew what was right, but refused to act on that knowledge for fear of the consequences. Now, the main point to take away from my message and the rest of the messages this evening is to view and gaze upon the suffering servant, Jesus Christ the righteous, from Isaiah 52 and 53, our Savior. And to look to him, who was the true Passover lamb, who went to the cross to pay the debt that we could never pay. This is who we should look to this evening, but let's take a brief moment to learn from Pilate's bad example, his cowardice. He knew the right thing to do. He even attempted to convince the Jews of Christ's innocence and to secure his release. But when push came to shove, he chose his own well-being over that of an innocent man. Christians, we cannot do likewise. The believing life is a costly life. We need to stand up for truth regardless of the cost, especially with regard to the innocent and any whom we have that we are charged to care over. We cannot look out for ourselves. We need to look out for others. Truly, apart from God's grace, we know this is impossible. But we, Christians, have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, and God's grace is abundant in our time of need. Amen? Now it's true, Pontius Pilate did not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in him, and we know that the crucifixion was predestined and ordained by God, and thank God that it was. But nevertheless, Pilate's and Judas's and the Jews and Caiaphas's sin was wholly their responsibility. And apart from belief in Christ that we don't read about, they will pay for this great sin for all eternity in the flames of hell. So, number one, let us learn to follow Christ at all costs and not to be a coward like Pontius Pilate was. But secondly, and more importantly tonight, let us who have been redeemed by the very sin that these men committed 2,000 years ago that evil act that God meant for good, a la Genesis 50, 20. 
Let us look to and rejoice in the great redemption that was brought upon by the death of the Lord Jesus Christ as a result of this sham trial we read about tonight. Isaiah 52, verse 13 and following says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many as were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Amen. I have the second part of the text. Uh, it is chapter 19, verses 16 through 30. And it reads, So they took Jesus, and he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place they called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. So the chief of priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the King of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am King of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and they divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it will be. This was to fulfill the scriptures, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said, uh, I'm sorry, my phone just haywired. Technology. Um, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour he... The disciple took her to his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished now, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of sour wine on the hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished, 
and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. If any of you have ever traveled south on I-95, headed down to Florida, once you pass Philadelphia, you would begin to see an increasing number of billboards advertising South Carolina's haven of family fun called Pedro's South of the Border. Anybody ever seen that? One sign would have a pun, another would mention the fine dining and sleeping conditions, the next would highlight the amusement rides and places to shop, and so on. If you reached Pedro's actual location, though, especially at night, it was unmistakable that you were there, uh, and that you, as long as you've been paying attention to the signs. The lights, the food, the people, the motel, the rides are all there and scream to the sojourner, you have arrived. Throughout the Old Testament scriptures, the creator of the universe and the great orchestrator of all history begins giving his people road signs that are designed to guide the traveler to a specific location in time and space. The appearance of these signs is almost immediate in biblical history, and they not only guide in navigation, but also in identification. So by the time you get to where they all point, It is unmistakable, and it screams to the sojourner, you have arrived. In our passage today concerning the event about which our Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday celebrations are designed to bring remembrance, we see right away the actual substance of the billboards the Lord began to give us way back in Genesis. Let's pick up where we left off in verse 17 where it says, They took Jesus. Already we have a significant sign. Isaiah 53, 7 describes it this way. Isaiah says, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as sheep before his shearers, he is silent, so he did not open his mouth. As Jesus was headed for his unjust and horrific execution, he allowed himself to be led like a sheep as if he had no idea what was coming. Why is that significant? If I asked you which of the Trinity the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit created everything, how would you answer? Think about that for a minute. Colossians 1, 15 through 16 tells us the answer. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him, the Son, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, All things were created through him and for him. That's the Son. This is significant because the Son who created this hill upon which he will be humiliated and despised, the trees from which the cross was made, and these men who are doing the bidding of evil and misguided rulers, he could put a stop to this in an apocalyptical fashion, destroying every one of them in a fury of fire and brimstone. But he chooses to go out as the scripture said he would. And what does he have with him? Nothing other than his clothes and a pile of wood upon which he is destined to breathe his last. We saw this before, though, didn't we? Abraham had a son named Isaac. This son was promised by God and to a woman who was barren and would, therefore, not be able to bear a child without the implementation of a miracle. He was born at a set time, as the scriptures say, brought joy to the heart of his father, was persecuted by his brethren, but remained obedient to the moment of execution. Genesis 22.3 tells us that Abraham loaded his donkey, an animal that's not unfamiliar to us, 
and brought two servants with him. Verse 6 tells us that the place that he placed the wood for the sacrifice upon Isaac's shoulders to carry them up the mountain. Upon their arrival at the location of the sacrifice, Abraham assures Isaac that God would provide a lamb for the offering. And lo and behold, within visual distance, there was a ram caught in the thorn-laden thickets. We've seen those before, too. Here we are now in John 19, still in visual distance of the very location of Isaac's sacrifice, this time not seeing a ram, but seeing Christ, the lamb identified as the one who would take away the sins of the world, caught in the thorn-laden thickets on his head, between two servants of God the Father's designation, being sacrificed upon the wood he carried up the mountain. Interestingly enough, the first use of the word love is here. First uh, mention of the word love in the Bible is when God commands Abraham in verse 2 to sacrifice the son he loves. Once the sacrificial account is over, we don't see Isaac again until he receives his bride in Genesis 24, 62. <laughs> Think he's trying to tell us something? And where is he going here in uh, John chapter 19? What is the name of this mount? It's Golgotha, the place of the skull. I remember seeing a billboard way back when we passed Genesis 3 where the promise was given that the seed of the woman would deal a fatal blow to the serpent, where it says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your skull and you shall wound his heel. Why the two thieves, though? Are they more than just reminiscent of Abraham's two servants? I think so. How do they help us know we have arrived and help us to understand exactly what we are seeing, what we're looking at? Maybe the multi multiple billboards drawing our attention to opposing duets throughout the Old Testament, starting with the self-absorbed, egocentric Cain versus the God-focused and God-honoring Abel. Maybe the rejected Ishmael versus the chosen Isaac. Maybe the hated Esau versus the loved Jacob. Each case demonstrating two sinful humans deserving discipline, yet with one of the two receiving God's grace and mercy instead. In all these cases, the culmination of whether they sought earthly things below or heavenly things above was made manifest in these two thieves. One seeking to get down with an attitude of defiance, the other anticipating his upward trajectory to paradise with an attitude of humble dependence. Then, starting in verse 19, we see the forced hand of a pagan political ruler fulfill God's sovereign direction. Verse 19 says, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. That means that you've got Jews. That means that you've got Gentiles. That means you've got people from all over the place. And it was written in Aramaic and Latin and Greek. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but rather this man said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, too bad. I've written what I've written. God uses what is likely Pilate's earthy or worldly desire to satisfy Roman judicial requirement to post the crime of the cross's victim atop the execution device 
while at the same time irritating the Jewish leaders who had created such a messy political situation for him. He's going to stick it to these guys. For what end does God use it, though? Because God can use anything. He uses it to declare to all that his prince of Jerusalem, or his prince of Shalom, is also king, and that there was nothing anyone could do to stop it. This road sign was planted way back where God made a covenant with David, communicated through the prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel 7.16, where it says, And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. We continue verse 23. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scriptures which said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. Why is this in here? Who cares about a piece of clothing when what's at stake is an unjust execution of an innocent man? Again, anyone who's seen the road signs miles ago would know exactly what they've stumbled onto at this point. The text implies the presence of four guards who divided Jesus' garments amongst themselves, but got to that fifth piece, and they cast lots for the valuable tunic rather than tear it to pieces. The prophecy of Psalm 22:18 says, They divided my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. It is indeed fulfilled here, but there are other signs that brought us to this location. In Leviticus 16, verse 4, the high priest was required to wear a seamless linen tunic on the Day of Atonement. Leviticus 21.10 then clarifies that the high priest was never to tear his clothes. In 16.23, we then read, after uh, the sacrifices were made by Aaron, that Aaron shall come into the tent of the meeting and shall take off the linen garments that he put on when he was in the holy place and shall leave them there. Verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Even in death, this king of the Jews and high priest who is about to atone for the sins of the whole world, tends to the proper care of his family. The earthly father, Joseph, is nowhere in the picture and probably deceased at this point. So care for the widowed mother would then pass down to the elder son. The elder son is now about to die. So he passes it on uh, to John, likely because John was a faithful follower, uh, while none of uh, Jesus' siblings were yet at this point. And Jesus was caring for Mary's physical and spiritual well-being. Verse 28, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. How does proclaiming, I thirst, fulfill the scriptures? 
Well, because in Psalm 69, 21, the writer says, they put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. Jesus' expression of thirst warranted then a response from someone in the crowd, someone in his proximity, to satisfy this prophecy written centuries earlier. This moment, though, has more to it, especially taking place in the context of the current Jewish celebration of Passover. It completes the manifestation of another roadside planted way back in Egyptian history, reminiscent of the captives of Pharaoh using branches of hyssop to paint their wooden door frames with lamb's blood so that the angel of death would pass over their homes. We see a branch of hyssop extended to the Lamb of God who has bloodied the wooden frame on which he hangs so that the death would pass over those who placed their trust in the sacrifice. His final cry of it is finished, or to telestai, it's actually one word, was his ultimate declaration of victory. This word was intentionally framed in its grammatical present tense uh, on purpose, and it was designed to communicate that it is finished, not that it was finished. The finishing addressed the sacrificial shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. Its present tense, though, addressed the effects of the finishing lasting for every moment in time that could be considered the present. It was finished, it is finished, it will be finished, the defeat of sin and death, so that all who are covered by the blood of the Lamb will live. (laughs) This event in John 19 is not just another road sign in a trail of many. It's the end of them. This is the culmination of all previous road signs, unmistakable, the substance of which they all spoke. It's the end of the trail and the final destination. It is the moment that all preceding moments led up to, and it is the moment that all following events point back to. And it screams to all who are here, you have arrived. so thankful for my fellow brothers and elders covering this text so faithfully and so well. Let's continue in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And here's our focus for the next few minutes. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. In April of 2018, almost exactly three years ago today, I woke up with a strange feeling. I thought that one of my children were sitting on my chest. So I peeked one eye open, only to realize that I was alone. And over the next few minutes, I 
realized something was incredibly wrong, and I made my way to urgent care and began getting nodules stuck to my chest, only to discover that there was, in fact, something wrong. I thought I was having a heart attack. I wasn't. But my initial assumption was not too wrong. I did have something wrong with my heart. Long story short, I had something called pericarditis. This is when you get an infection in the soft tissue that surrounds your heart called the pericardium. And this led me to, as it should often do if you have heart issues, quickly learning a great deal about the heart. Surrounding the heart is this membrane, and inside of the membrane, it's like a balloon filled with liquid so that your heart does not get affected by all of the other organs in your chest that constantly bump into it. In my case, that membrane had contracted an infection, and it was spasming and squeezing my heart very tightly. This medical issue was quickly resolved, thank the Lord, through some very simple medical treatments, but it helped me to understand a little bit more of what's going on here in John's account of what happened directly following Jesus' death. If you've ever watched a war movie, perhaps you've asked yourself the question, why don't these guys just take what I would call the coward's way out? Why don't they just lay down and pretend to be dead until the opposing army leaves and then they'll be fine? Well, the reason that that doesn't work, the reason that that is not simple, is because trained armies, especially those in the ancient world, ensured the death of their enemies. And John reveals to us that one of these soldiers, one of these trained warriors, sought to ensure that Jesus had not merely fainted, that he was not merely pretending, that this was not an act of some kind. Being a soldier and an executioner who is desensitized to death, he picked up a spear and he stabbed it up under the rib cage of the Savior and directly into Jesus' heart. This soldier was probably a grizzled man. He had absolutely no regard for human life, especially not the life of this kind of person who would be hanging on a cross. He had probably performed thousands of executions. I doubt that he had any emotion on his face whatsoever when he stabbed this spear into and back out of Jesus' body. To him, it would be no more meaningful than you or I sending a fax or locking the door on our way out of the office. It's doubtful that he even gave it a second thought. Although John does not offer us a medical breakdown of the specific organs affected, we do know from the fact that both blood and water poured out of his, this dehydrated and parched man's body, it indicates that he was, in fact, stabbed directly through the pericardium and that his life would be ended because his heart could no longer beat. This explains John's words. It was a death blow that no human being could ever survive. Now, we know that spears were large, but we don't know exactly what size this spear would have been. What we can tell you safely, that it was at least four inches across, and we know this because Jesus would later tell his disciple Thomas, when he arrives to him, put your hand into the wound on my side. This must have been a large gash. This was by no means a surgical, precise action on this man's part. He intended to do as much physical damage to the interior of Jesus' body as possible. John highlights this moment, as with many others in this chapter that have already been focused upon, by drawing a line for us from the Old Testament, connecting those dots on our behalf, revealing that signpost that was in the Old Testament so that we might see. He tells us that this book took, uh, this took place in order to fulfill a very specific prophecy. And that prophecy is found in Zechari Zechariah chapter 12. In this particular passage, in this particular obscure minor prophet, God was promising something to Israel. He was promising salvation to his people. And the prophecy begins this way. 
It says, and the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem might not pass that, surpass that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David. And the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. Take note of what God is promising in this prophecy. The day of salvation that he is declaring will come. The one that will be part of, for all of his people. He says that those who are part of the covenant of David are the ones who will experience these blessings of salvation. He will make even the weakest of the people to themselves be like David. Now, this was written hundreds of years after David's death, but those of you who are following the Bible reading plan, we're, we're learning of David now. This man is a conqueror. This man is a champion. This man is a warrior. This man does not lose battles. He is a victor. And here he says, you all are going to be like David. And he continues and says, this would be the case, because someone from the house of David was going to lead them out into battle, and it says the one who would lead them out, quote, would be like God. In other words, there is going to be somebody leading you into battle greater than David, who would be just as incapable of being destroyed as the eternal, sovereign, supreme, all-powerful God of the universe. This one who will lead you out is your champion. Yet the text of Zechariah then takes a strange turn. This verse here will be on the screen for us. Uh, I want to be at verse 10, Rocky, so that we can see exactly what God says is going to take place here. He says, And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. Now notice two things up front. Who is speaking? Who is speaking here? It's not Zechariah. This is God's word. He is the one who can pour out grace, is he not? God himself is promising to do the work. And what is the work that he promises to do? To pour out a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. In other words, our salvation is fully dependent upon the fact that God himself has abundantly promised to bear our sins, not with the punishment they deserve, but with much grace and mercy. But notice how he says this grace is going to get to us from him. Zechariah's prophecy continues, says, so that when they look on me, on whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps, weeps over a firstborn. This is exactly the passage that John is relating to. But remind us who is speaking. It's God's voice. Is it not God still being heard? He says, when they look on me. God, it says, they will look on me, whom they has, have pierced. God is declaring that he himself will be pierced. But the grammar here is very odd in this verse because directly after that very same voice is heard saying, they shall mourn for him. The same person changes from first person to third person in a matter of moments. They look on me and they mourn for him. This is referencing the same person in the same sentence. This is the kind of writing that would not pass a fourth grade teacher's scrutinizing red pen. Why would the Holy Spirit incite and inspire Zechariah to use this kind of back and forth grammatical language? Because it's accurate. Only God can write this way and be accurate. This statement is true and it is actually sensible and logical and reasonable because the voice of God that is being heard in Zechariah is the voice of multiple members of the Trinity. 
The Father and the Son are both communicating in this sentence. The Father and the Son both speaking. And the Son says, they will look on me. And the Father says, they will mourn for him. In this, we see God's plan to give grace and salvation all boils down to God himself being pierced. Divine self-satisfaction by divine self-substitution. This is why John calls our attention to this verse and says, they will look upon him whom they have pierced. But who has pierced the side of Jesus? Clearly in John 19, it's a Roman soldier, it's an executioner, it's a trained professional killer. But in Zechariah, God lays the spear at the feet of not just one soldier, but a group of people. It reads, they look upon me whom they have pierced. The question is, who are they? And the answer is given by context. It's all who meet the following criteria. Those who look on him. This does not simply mean those who see him with their physical eyes. It cannot mean that because not all who received the grace of God's promise in Zechariah 10 were present on the hill of Calvary 2,000 years ago. And we also know that because John goes out of his way to explain that he observed these things and accurately recorded them so that you and I do not have to be present in order to believe in them. But what does it mean to look on him? Thank you, Mike. Behold the man. Is it to see what Jesus has done on our behalf? Not just another Roman execution, but a man who died for your sins. As Mike read earlier, he was pierced for our transgressions. Or you actually stopped right before. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, the very next words after he ended. He was pierced for a purpose, for our transgressions, he says. To transgress means to cross the line, meaning that if you are a Christian, every single time you have ever crossed the line that God has drawn in the sand, every sin you have ever committed was placed on Jesus Christ, and that is the reason that he suffered, bled, and died. The second criteria we have is that those who look on him whom they have pierced will mourn for him. Good Friday is a solemn gathering. We're here to celebrate the cross, but it's not the kind of celebration we have with a feast. It's not the kind of celebration we experience on Resurrection Sunday. This is the night that we celebrate with tears in our eyes and we remember the genuine suffering of the king who died in our place, that God himself bore our flesh he became one of us. He became a human being. As one author once wrote, God with a belly button. He came down here and lived on this earth around people just like you and me, treated poorly by his own creations, even to the point of death. John here is metaphorically helping us to fit into this hilltop halfway around the world a millennia ago, two millennia ago. We fit into the story because you and I, if we are in Christ, we are the ones holding that spear. We are the ones looking on him whom we have pierced, and we are mourning. He is calling us to look upon the Savior that we have pierced. The fact is that Jesus was not on that cross because of anything that he had ever done wrong. He was there for a legitimate reason, though. Even though from every earthly perspective this was unjust, actually what was taking place was cosmic justice. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 reminds us that he bore our sins in his body on the tree. So look on this one whom you have pierced. See how his death occurred because of your actions and because of mine. Jesus experienced the full weight of man's violence. Yes, he did. But he experienced something much worse. The entire unvented wrath of God in order to redeem his people. Every single sin of every single person who would ever be saved was placed on Jesus that day. And he became all that God must hate 
in order that we could become fully accepted. For as it is written, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So believer, tonight we stand before a cross with a spear in our hands and tears in our eyes to joyfully mourn the death of the Savior. And we look upon the one whom we have pierced, and all we can do is utter a a gracious thank you, Jesus, thank you. But perhaps tonight you're with us as a friend, but not as a believer in Jesus Christ. And perhaps you've never seen Jesus for who he really is. Maybe you're just like that Roman soldier operating without a care in the world as to who Jesus is. Maybe you believe he died. You're here, in fact, on a Good Friday. But you see no value in his death. You see no abnormal consequence for your life in this action of this man who died. Your intention is to walk into this service and to walk out of this service completely unaffected and unchanged. And if that is you tonight, I plead with you, behold the man. See the signposts. We have arrived at this moment, this cross, because this is the moment in history that everything was leading to. This man, Jesus Christ, died so that people like you and I might live. Look to the Savior and live. You are going to spend eternity somewhere, and the one thing that determines where that will be, heaven or hell are your only options, is what you do with Jesus Christ in this lifetime right now. It is what you do with this man who suffered, bled, and died for sinners. See, he's not on that cross anymore. He's not in a tomb. His bones are not rotting. On the third day, he rose again, and he conquered death, and he conquered hell forever. And if you will simply see him for who he is, you will be saved. So look upon him who was pierced. See that it was for your transgressions and that he crushed, he was crushed for your iniquities. Look to Jesus and you will be saved. John tells us exactly why he wrote this down for us. He says in verse 35 that he has told you, quote, so that you may also believe. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. John 19 continues and he explains to us what exactly happens to the body of Jesus, verse 38, after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Here we come to the close of Good Friday. This is the end of the events that day that we have in the Scripture. The body of Jesus laid to rest. The soul of Jesus descended to the dead so that he might inhabit all of the places that we did, not just in life, but also in death. Jesus, praise be to God, did not remain in that grave. It's Good Friday, but we know we have an eye towards Sunday morning. For the believer, every single day is Resurrection Day, and we know the end of the story. Jesus is alive. So let me close our time with this final exhortation from Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 13 through 14. He writes, Since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. Let's pray. God, God the Father, we thank you so much for all of the words spoken tonight. 
I ask, Lord, that you would help us to know and believe. If there is anyone here who doesn't know you, cause them, Lord, I pray, to behold the man. That they might see the signposts. That all of the Bible, all of your written word, and all of creation itself is pointing to Jesus the Savior. That we might be able to see that we are the ones who are guilty. He is the one who is innocent. Yet he died in our place. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who knows you, that we would be so radically encouraged by the great mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, although he had committed no sin, gave himself up for us all. God, I pray that tonight we would be blessed and encouraged and that our hearts would rejoice, knowing that our King loved us to the point of death, even death on a cross. Amen.